We have two readings this morning, and the first is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. You can find that on page 56 of your pew Bible. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that through the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Our second reading is from John 8, verses 48 to 59, and that can be found on page 1060 of your pew Bibles. The Jewish leaders answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jewish leaders exclaimed, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jewish leaders said to him. 
And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are just delighted to welcome Reverend Fleming Rutledge to Knox Church. Reverend Rutledge has spent 22 years in parish ministry, and since then, God has opened up for her an international ministry of teaching and preaching. She is also an accomplished author, and her latest book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, is an absolute gem. It actually has been named by Christianity Today their 2017 Book of the Year, And there is good reason for that. It is, as I said, a gem, an extraordinary book. Theologically deep, rich, beautifully written. It is pastoral. It is scholarly. And most of all, it is richly, warmly evangelical, announcing the good news that we know in the cross of Christ. I don't know about you, but the cross, I find, even in my own imagination and life, can, can easily get sentimentalized. It, we're, we're so far removed from the events of the cross of Christ that the danger is it does get sentimentalized. If you read this book, it will not. She returns us to some of the appalling nature of the cross And yet, in it, you will find your heart wonderfully warm to the grace of the gospel that is in the cross of Christ. You will find yourself lost in wonder over the riches of God's grace we know in Jesus Christ. And so we are delighted to welcome Reverend Fleming Rutledge to Knox Church this morning. May God bless you as you bring God's word. What a generous gracious introduction. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to speak to your congregation this morning. Now I'm going to ask that photographer on the front row to finish her work within the first five minutes because I am not a member of the media generation and I find it somewhat distracting. So please feel free to take pictures now, but not not as I get further into this. We are celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's true that the Reformation resulted not only in the reinvigoration of the church, but also in terrible wars and schisms which stained the glorious biblical theology preached and taught by Luther and Calvin and their successors. Nevertheless, I am proud to call myself a reformed thinker in the Anglican tradition, and I'm always very grateful to be invited to preach in a Presbyterian church. Now, this is the first Sunday in Lent, and I understand, I think this is right, uh, that you're going to spend these weeks together in hearing, once again, the story of Jesus' trial, suffering, and crucifixion. Now, you'll be hearing and studying the way that the Bible tells that story, not in dry propositions or rationalized theories, but in drama, images, word pictures. 
you'll enter more deeply into the various ways that the earliest Christians sought to understand what had happened to their Lord and Master. Why was Jesus put to death in such a gruesome, dehumanizing, public fashion? That's the question that steers my book and that steered me through the 20 years of writing it. Why was Jesus put to death in such a gruesome, public way? The New Testament searches this out in a tapestry of motifs and themes. In his excruciating death, Jesus was a sacrificial lamb. He was a ransom. He opened up a new exodus. He was our substitute. He suffered the judgment that we deserved. He descended into hell. And as the new Adam, he relived our human life from the inside and emerged victorious over the powers of sin and death on our behalf and in our place. You'll look at these as one looks at the facets of a prism, turning it first this way and then that way to catch the light. No one facet should be allowed to predominate. All are essential to understanding what Jesus did for us in his death. I'd like to emphasize one thing from the beginning. If you don't remember anything else, I hope you'll remember this. It's commonplace to talk about our journey to God. Everywhere I go in the early weeks of Lent, I hear about our journey to the cross. But our journey is really not the point. In and of ourselves, we are not able to make a journey to God, as Isaac Watts so wonderfully says it in that hymn. The story of salvation is not our journey to God, but his journey to us. You remember the story of the prodigal son, how he took a journey into a far country, and he lost his inheritance, his family, his friends, his self-respect, his future, and ended up sitting in a pigsty with nothing to eat. Karl Barth, when he sought to find a way of describing God's journey, called it the journey of the Son of God into the far country. Yes, Jesus came into the pigsty of our world for our salvation. That is the journey that we tell. The retelling of that story, that journey, is our vocations as Christians until we are called home. So, as an introduction to your immersion in the New Testament story of the journey of the Son of God to the cross, I'd like to start out with the two biblical texts that you just heard. 
one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Now, actually, I have four texts, but I'm saving two of them for the end. Now, these passages seem like a a sort of strange choice for the first Sunday in Lent because they don't seem to have anything to do with the passion and death of our Lord, but they are an entry into something primary and indispensable for understanding the death of Christ, namely, who is he? As his enemies said in the lesson that you heard, who do you think you are? Who was he? Who is he? What is his identity? Everything depends on that. And he himself asked his disciples at a crucial moment in the other three Gospels, the first three, Who do you say that I am? We're going to start by asking another question. Who is God? How are we to understand who God is? And how are we supposed to worship God? And how do we conceive of him when we worship him? when we seek to follow him, when we try to shape our lives according to him. Now, it's really important to realize that the answer to that question is not self-evident. Many people that believe that God is what we make of him. I once let, let myself be talked into an argument about what God is like with a woman whom I knew was not a churchgoer or in any sense a student of what's in the Bible. She didn't like what I was saying, and I, to be sure, I was probably not saying it very well. But she declared that the God I was talking about was dreadful, and that her God had nothing to do with church or Bible, but was always love and kindness, and she ended up triumphantly saying, And I think that's a pretty nice God. It's funny how I'm still thinking about that 30 years later. Calvin writes that the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. All of us continually imagine God to suit ourselves. I think that's a pretty nice God. Now, this question about idols and the identity of the true God lies at the heart of the story of the burning bush. I'm sure you know we are not supposed to take this literally. Let's not worry about what kind of desert plant this was or how hot the sun was or maybe this bush had some kind of sap that kept it from burning quickly. That's not the point, right? The point is that this is amazing. This is not something that happens in everyday life. There's an atmosphere of the uncanny and the inexplicable here. Moses doesn't get that right away. 
He goes toward the bush with the idea that he can figure it out. When he discovers its secret, then he can go on about his business. But a voice comes out of the bush. What's this, a talking bush? Here's where the story gets really serious. This voice is not a human voice. The speaker is invisible, surrounded by flames. In the words of one of our classic hymns, the speaker is in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. To Moses, the voice says, stand away, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Suddenly we are on notice. This is not a matter for scientific investigation or even religious investigation. This is about to become an event of revelation. Now, sermons on this passage often go into a lot of detail about the importance of names and how, in the culture of the time, the name was thought to convey the very essence of a person. That's true, and that's important, but that's not where I'm going to focus this morning. Let's listen to what the voice is saying from another angle. The voice said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This should startle us. It's an extremely strange name for a God. What God names himself by the names of human beings? This is one of the unique characteristics of the God of the Bible. He has bound himself in a covenant, a one-sided covenant, to specific earthly human beings and to their generations, a covenant driven not by our religious imagination, but by his purpose. How spectacularly different from the gods of human religion. And what a mixed lot they are, these people of God. They are not giants of spiritual achievement, not by a long shot. Read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob once again to remember how imperfect they are. But their names, spoken by the voice from the bush, has a transforming effect upon Moses. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Somehow that's not the pretty nice God of my conversation partner. Moses was afraid to look at God. How much does Moses know about these ancestors of his? We can't be sure of that, but as the biblical saga proceeds from this point, it's going to become increasingly clear that these ancestors of Moses are ancestors of our own. You, too, are children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in ways that will be fully developed through 2,000 years later. 
God has bound himself to us according to his purpose by these names of conspicuously imperfect human beings. But that's just the beginning. What does the voice from the bush do next? I say do instead of say. What does the voice do? If anything happens in the words that I'm speaking this morning, it will be because God has done something. Everything that the church preaches depends not on the preacher who is an empty vessel. Everything the church preaches depends on what the Word of God does, not what it says, but what it does. One of the supreme achievements of the Reformers 500 years ago was to awaken the church, reawaken the church to the doctrine of the Word of God, which is not so much speech as it is powerful action. God said, let there be light, and there was light, just like that. So the Lord says this great and mighty thing to Moses. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I hope that everyone in this place knows, however little of the Bible you may have read, I hope you know that this is not only one of the greatest moments in biblical history, but in human history. And not only is that so, it is repeated every time God calls a new Moses to lead his people out of bondage. The oppressed black people of America who braved beatings, imprisonment, and death during the American Civil Rights Movement knew that Martin Luther King was their Moses, not because he was a flawless human being, which he most certainly was not, but because, because God had raised him up. But we have not yet approached the climax of the story of the burning bush. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What am I to say to them? And God said, I am who I am. And God said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
God's name forever. If someone asks you, do you believe in God, what do you say? The word God can mean so many different things. You have your pretty nice God and I have mine. So if you say, yes, I believe in God, that's only the first step. The second step is, I believe in the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is God's name forever. But most extraordinary of all, the name that our God gives to Moses is so far beyond our wishes projected onto God that the Jews, as you probably know very well, have always had a tradition that it was too sacred a name to pronounce. And indeed, we don't know exactly how to translate it. I am who I am is only an approximation, but it is nevertheless highly suggestive. God is not who we think he is. God is not who we wish he was. God is not created out of human imagination or human wishing or human longing. He is who he is in himself. This revealed truth undergirds all of the history of God and of Israel, and there is no part of the vast Old Testament literature that contradicts this. Given the human tendency to make God in our own image, this is a unique disclosure. God has named God's self and has given us as much of that name to us as God wants us to know. I am who I am. Say to Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. Now, come forward to the courts of the second temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years later. Jesus of Nazareth is locked in controversy with the priests and the scribes, the teachers of the law. They are trying to trip him up any way that they can. They accuse him of having demonic powers. Jesus says, I do not have a demon. I honor my father. The envious teachers continue to goad him into something they can fasten onto him. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, My father is your God, but you have not known him. I know him. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. His opponents are scandalized. You're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So they took up stones to throw at him for blasphemy. But he hid himself and went out of the temple because the time had not yet come for him to give himself up. I don't quite know how to put across how, strong, how extraordinary this is. Before Abraham was, I am. No one is supposed to throw around the sacred name of God like that at all, let alone apply it to himself. This is worse than blasphemy. This is unthinkable. This is beyond all barriers. It transcends imagination. No wonder they tried to stone him. The more I've reflected on this, the more it pushes against the boundaries even of the scripture itself. The gospel of Jesus is known for its high concept of Christ, but this is audacious even for John. The Lord identifies himself directly with the name which is above all names. This passage links us to John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't get any more pointed than that. But this is not the last time this happens. When Jesus' time comes, the time for him to give himself up, what do we read? Jesus' account, or excuse me, John's, the evangelist, John's account of the arrest of Jesus on the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper tells us this. I'm going to go, I'm going to read this as it occurs in the Greek doesn't appear this way in most of the English translations, but this is the way it appears in John's Greek. So Judas procured a band of soldiers and some chief priests and Pharisees, and they went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And when he said this, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, as we enter upon this season of the preaching of the cross, we are the people whom God calls with no less urgency than his call to Moses. He is calling us to embrace with our inmost selves this unheard of gospel. In the suffering and the death of Jesus of Nazareth, we see God. What? Have any of us really thought about that? People will say that the cross shows us how much God loves us, but that's not enough. The cross shows us God's self. 
God gives himself up to be crucified by sin. God, in taking our human condition upon himself, has gone the whole way into depths that you and I could not have survived. I really don't know how to put this across without violating the sacred name of God. But I'm asking us to think as deeply as we are able to recognize that in Jesus we see God. If this is not so, then the crucifixion is not a world-defining, world-destroying, world-recreating event, but a colossal mistake that would call the entire Christian project into question. But it is so. It was not a mistake. It was the intention of God from the beginning. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and when the hour came, he gave himself up with full understanding of what he was doing. What a paradox this is. The enemies of Jesus tried to show that he had a demon. In the fourth gospel, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. As Jesus gives himself up to the ruler of this world, he destroys the power of this supreme enemy and of his weapons, sin and death. And when he dies, he says, It is finished. It is completed. Consummatum est. I have finished my work. And so it comes to pass that after the resurrection, Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, was not with them when the risen Jesus appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Those titles are reserved in the Old Testament for Yahweh alone. This is the climactic moment in the fourth gospel. John has held back these titles, reserving them for the moment 
when the crucified Christ reveals his wounds. In all the Gospels, this is the highest designation of Jesus. The highest designation of Jesus as God himself that we have in the Gospels. Here is the moment. Everything leads to this. Jesus says, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's me, and that's you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed is every person in this congregation at this moment who sees Jesus Christ today, not with human eyesight, but with the eyes of faith, and says to him, here and now, my Lord and my God. God of scandalous, costly grace, you who have sought us out, entering into our bruised, broken world, we praise you, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, for what we could never have done ourselves. And so we simply bow before you and confess and worship and say, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name, amen.